Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. In the first line of The Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens famously wrote, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Ha <laughs> ha. But were he alive today, Dickens might simply cut it short and say, it's the worst of times. Indeed, after four years of Donald Trump, a year and a half of COVID, 25% of Americans not accepting the results of the last election, and the country perhaps more divided than ever before, it's hard to imagine a tougher time for America, leading some, starting with President Biden himself, to openly raise the question, whether or not our democracy can even survive. How did we get here? How bad is it? And how do we get out of this mess? Those are the questions that The Atlantic's George Packer tackles in his provocative and insightful new book just out last week, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. George Packer, good to talk to you. Thank you for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you for having me. Uh, first, George, before we get into uh, your very insightful, very important new book, Last Best Hope, I, I must tell you, um, I have never enjoyed a political biography more than I enjoyed uh, your recent book, Our Man, about Richard Holbrook. <laughs> uh, I read a lot of political biographies and really it's one of the best uh, ever. So uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, but I have to ask you. Is there any doubt that if Holbrook were still alive, he would be, he would have been a royal pain in the ass to become Secretary of State under Joe Biden? He would never have given up that effort, um, even though I think it would have been too late for him if he had lived. Uh, he and Biden agreed about everything, pretty much in foreign policy, and therefore they despised each other. Um, and were sort of rivals for the, you could say, the liberal internationalist um, mantle. And so I, I think Biden would have mm-hmm. gotten Holbrook anywhere near his administration if Holbrook had, had lived. Yeah. Right. Uh, and in fact, as you point out in the book, Barack Obama really didn't want him anywhere near his administration no. uh, either. O- he, uh, Obama really didn't like Holbrook, could barely conceal it, um, and it broke Holbrook's heart. And yeah, Our Man, wonderful book. Thank you so much for that. And let, let, let's move here to Last Best Hope. But George, I want to start just reading you um, a couple of sentences from uh, your the prologue of the book. Um, you're painting a picture of America, last best hope, America in crisis and renewal. And you say, quote, look outside. Our bridges are buckling. Another factory has closed up. Badly ventilated schools are failing to educate another generation of children. Hospital beds are overflowing again. Local shops are posting out of business signs. 
while Amazon delivery trucks fill the streets. Our thought leaders sound like carnival barkers. Our citizenry seems to be suffering through early-stage national cognitive decline, and the common skeleton is unknitting and likely to fall apart in a heap of bones for future archaeologists to study with furrowed expressions of puzzled sadness. George, is it really that bad out there? Right now, today, it doesn't feel like it's that bad. That seems a bit uh, exaggerated. I wrote that in a dark winter of the pandemic um, before the vaccine had become widely distributed. uh, And I didn't imagine how quickly we would rebound, at least in some ways, from the worst year of my life, 2020. Um, But I don't want to forget what happened last year because it's still with us. We are still in the high risk category. We still are divided and not just split into into different groups, but groups that hate each other, that see each other as existential threats to the country. That has not ended. So even if we can take off our masks, and I was in the supermarket yesterday, very few people had masks on. It felt amazingly free and normal. I Last year taught us things that I don't think we should forget because they, they haven't changed and they're not going to change easily. And this division into tribes, uh, as you describe, uh, it, it started before the pandemic, right? The pandemic was certainly a huge factor, um, but that wasn't the only factor or the beginning factor not at all. of this division. Not at all. I mean, we all know that... We're- what were some of the other fa- what were some of the other factors? Go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. I mean, we're we are two countries, red and blue, but each of those countries is itself fractured into different narratives, into different ideas about what America should be, and they're quite conflictual. To me, Bill, it goes back really a long way, maybe to the seventies, when two things began to happen at the same time. One, we started to become the multi-everything democracy, that's my phrase for it, that we should be with races and religions and ethnic groups uh, included. That, that became a, more of a reality than it's ever been in our history over the last 50 years. At the same time, we became economically more stratified, more unequal, than we've been since the late 19th century. And that's because of the end of the industrial age and the beginning of the information economy, which has sorted us into extreme winners and losers, um, like the robber barons of the Gilded Age. Those two things together, I think, have created a kind of status struggle, a a bitter competition for resources and, and beyond resources just for social status between groups and between narratives that has really made us almost ungovernable, has made it very difficult for us as a country, as a people to come together to solve big problems like a pandemic, which we failed miserably at. And you mentioned income inequality. I I was going to ask you about that as uh, as a contributing factor. Uh, prompted by news just um, this week that during the pandemic, most Americans actually um, gained a little wealth 
U.S. households added $13.5 trillion in wealth, but most of that went to the top 1% uh, of Americans. That's been, Here again. that's been the trend for as long as we can remember, Bill. I mean, really since the late 70s, early 80s, wealth and income have been flowing upward to the top 1%, you could say the top 10%. Um, who are a kind of upper class today. And the middle, and especially the bottom, have been stagnant or even falling further behind. Um, and that is, again, uh, a result of both a huge economic shift from industry to service and information, and also government policies and uh, choices that were made mm -hmm. along the way that shifted wealth upwards. So yeah, I mean, people who could stay home and um, work on a laptop during the pandemic and watch their 401ks go up and didn't spend as much money because they couldn't go out, they couldn't eat out, they couldn't travel, they saw their wealth increase. And the 1% surely, but even you could say the top 10 or 15%, I think, saw their wealth increase. But those who lost their jobs, um, who fell ill, who lost family members, who don't have uh, retirement accounts and investments in the mar stock market that went up during the pandemic, they, they fell further behind. And that's, it just seems like no matter what's going on, whether it's a Democrat or Republican in the White House, whether we're at war or at peace, whether there's a recession or a boom, that's the trend. It's been the trend for 40 years. And to what extent did Donald Trump contribute to worsening, if you will, uh, the divisions in this country and putting us on a path, as you indicate, where uh, the rest of the world doesn't see the America, United States of America as a country that they either admire or envy anymore? Right, right. Donald Trump, largely responsible? Yes, he has a lot to do with it. Last year, we became a kind of pitiable country. I mean, do you remember there were periods when we were getting humanitarian aid from Taiwan and Russia, and when you know people in Europe were looking at our uh, COVID death rate and saying, "Oh, poor America! It's just uh, it's become a kind of backward country that and is so politically poisoned, where masks have become badges of political identity." Where else was that going on? Yeah, we became a basket case for a while. And Trump, who used the pandemic to divide us because he, he knew he couldn't, he didn't have the competence and maybe even the desire to end it or to manage it. Instead, he saw it as an opportunity, one more opportunity of many to divide his people from the rest. And he did everything he could. And the, the death count reflected that. So Trump bears a lot of responsibility for just the, the leveling down of our politics, our language, of, of the erosion of our de democratic norms. I do think that Trump in some way belongs to all of us, that his, of course, his voters bear responsibility for Trump. But as a phenomenon, as someone who 10 years ago didn't seem possible, I think the whole of America created Trump uh, with these divisions and with a kind of, um, yeah, kind of ripping a part of our, of our fabric that made it possible for a demagogue to step in and say, just give it to me and I'll do it. 
in, in fact, you use a phrase which um, gave me chills, which is that uh, Trump, it may be possible, maybe, you, you don't assert that it was, but that's possible, that Trump showed who we really are as a people. The fact that this demagogue, this clown could become president said a lot about us. Is that a lasting appeal, do you believe, now that he's no longer in office? Well, I think he still has a pretty strong hold on a substantial minority of Americans. Uh, I was just driving around parts of the Northeast uh, over the weekend where I saw Trump flags everywhere, Trump 2024 flags. Ooh. So he's he's still in people's minds. They, he represents something powerful to certain Americans. He's sort of the revenge on whoever they feel has left them behind or despises them or is changing the country in ways that they find appalling. Yeah, Trump is still there. And demagogues will always be a threat because democracy depends, of course, on the people. And the people are easily convinced that they that they no longer have power, that elites are ruling, um, which is something that there was a battle last year between experts, epidemiologists, etc., and Trump's people. And the experts always had an uphill battle because it felt as if they were going against uh, the desires of people. They were telling people what they could and couldn't do. You have to wear a mask. You have to keep six feet of distance. For Americans, these are some Americans find it very hard to be told what to do by an expert, and that is kind of endemic in democracy at least in ours, and Trump exploits it. Demagogues will always be there to exploit that feeling that the people are losing their their power. And it leads you and others, including the president of the United States, who has raised this question, the most fundamental question of all, I guess, uh, can our democracy survive? Well, we certainly did ourselves a big favor by voting Trump out of office, uh, and when you think about it, Bill, no other country that saddled itself with a populist right-wing demagogue, and there are many of them around the world, has gotten rid of him. It's always a him. Um, India, Turkey, Russia, Britain, um, right. the list goes on. Brazil. I mean, there's so many Trumps around the world, and they're all still there. Only Americans managed to save an ailing democracy just when it seemed about to be put uh, into some kind of permanent state of decline. So that to me is a major source of hope. The election went off. It went well. It was incident-free other than the minor fact that the president tried to overthrow the results and overturn the constitution. But if you leave that aside, it was a spectacular display of kind of a, a self-government at its best. I'm also encouraged by some of the things that President Biden is doing, which I think are geared towards showing Americans that government is capable of improving their lives, their material conditions, um, and doing so across the board rather than simply the people who voted for him. So I think equality is kind of the guiding principle of the Biden administration. And if I'm right, then I think he 
is going to lead us in a direction that gives us a second chance. Uh, we can always screw it up because we are so divided and um, our media plays such a, in some ways, a destructive role in heightening the divisions because it seems to benefit from that. And so do a lot of political elites. But I think a great many Americans are tired of, not of their own values, they're going to hold on to those, but of being pitted against one another by people in politics and media who don't pay the price. I was very encouraged by that. Uh, as you point out, there is um, a good sign, there are good signs, rather, uh, that Americans, maybe, maybe not all Americans, right? There's a good follow, a group of followers out there who still are so loyal to Trump, but more and more Americans who really want a return to some kind of normalcy. As you point out, 74 million voted for Trump, but 81 million voted for Joe Biden, right? 158 million total vote, more than ever voted before in a presidential election. Um, Americans stopped Donald Trump and threw him out. And the insurrection failed and even Mike Pence didn't vote to overthrow. So there are some signs that Americans do still want democracy. You know, there are even um, micro signs that came out of the election that were encouraging to me beyond any partisan interest. For example, the one group that Trump lost ground with was white men. Now, who would have predicted that based on what he seemed to stand for and who seemed to support him during his presidency? But white men began to, you know, small numbers, but important numbers to to lose uh, their their support for him. He went up with black men, with Latino men, less with black and Latino women, but a little bit. For a lot of people on the left, those were shocking um, poll data. But for me, there, mm-hmm. there's something almost encouraging in that we are not the monolithic voting groups that we are sometimes portrayed as and maybe think of ourselves as. We still are a nation of individuals. People still make up their own minds about things. We can still defy the pundits. And there's more of a mix across racial lines and across uh, partisan lines than we imagine. We sometimes have this idea that America is these absolutely monolithic blocks that, uh, that never vary and that are in kind of perpetual war. Whereas I think the reality at the level of ordinary people is more complex and more unpredictable. And to me, that's sort of a hopeful thing. Yeah, maybe talking so far on how we got into what, the, uh, how big a mess we're in, and how we got into it. Um, but there's a lot of George Packer's book, "Last Best Hope: America in Crisis and Renewal," on how we can together get out of this mess. I want to jump into that, but George, we're going to take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, then we'll come back and resume our conversation. Just, just hang in there for just a minute. Thanks. And today's podcast with George Packer brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Over half a million strong under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, members of the Laborers Union building America and ready to rebuild America's infrastructure and taking care of our energy supply by building everything from old-fashioned pipelines to new wind turbines and solar panels. Check out their website, liuna.org, 
And we thank the members of the Laborers Union for their support of the Bill Press Pod. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back. Today's guest, George Packer from The Atlantic. Uh, He is author of the New book just out, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, a very uh, sober look, a very realistic look at where America is today, um, both uh, the good and the bad, the bad and the good, maybe I should say. And George, in, in fact, um, you, you point out, George, this may be a moment of existential crisis, but we've been here before in, in this country uh, several times and have always managed to work our way out of it, which gives you some hope, I would have, I would, and all of us should give some hope? Yeah, we, I think the the recurring crisis in America is over equality. That's in a way what the Civil War was about. It's what the Great Depression and the New Deal were about. It's what the turmoil of the 60s was about. Because as Tocqueville wrote in the 1830s, and I think it's still true, the the most distinctive feature of Americans is the passion for equality, the desire to be on the same level with everyone. When it is denied to individuals or groups, as we have done throughout our history, it produces social conflict. And I think something like that has also been happening in our moment. But those previous examples show that we are capable of moving toward greater equality. Um, and it's it's always a struggle, and it's often a violent struggle, but it's kind of the lifeline of, of democracy, because if we can't manage it, we can no longer come to decisions about common problems, and in fact, might even fall to fighting each other. People were talking about a civil war last fall. People were arming up and buying guns and ammunition and boarding up their businesses before the election as if there might be widespread uh, civil violence, um, not necessarily armies arrayed against each other, but it didn't come to that. We did have a little insurrection in January, 
uh, as you mentioned. But I think if we can find ways to make Americans feel like they are on the same level with others, and that has partly to do with economic conditions, with education, and just with a sense of, of citizenship and belonging and having a place, um, I think the temperature will go down. It won't end the mm-hmm. fighting, the divisions. Those are based on real things. But at least the level of fury and, and agita might begin to subside as Americans see government actually achieving things to make their lives better. And isn't that, um, as you indicate, maybe more likely or, or, or more touchable, I guess, at the city level, at the county level, or at the state level than at the federal government level? I mean, when you look at Washington, Bill, it does seem as if it is basically blocked, um, even with one party at the moment in control of the White House and both houses of Congress. Um, our we put so many obstacles to majority rule in our system, and then the minority party is manipulating and abusing some of them, that it's very hard right now to create big national policies. I think Biden is trying, and his jobs plan, his family plan, um, both are really important steps, even if they get watered down with compromise, with a necessary compromise. But I do think for Americans to actually have to see each other as fellow citizens again, it's not going to happen in Washington. It's not going to happen on cable TV or on Twitter. It might happen in towns, uh, in even in states where people are just confronting the same problem. And it's a, such a it's a problem as big as, say, wildfires or as big as rising seas and have to face it together because it affects all of them. The pandemic seemed like that, but it we were just too divided to come together to fight the pandemic. I think if people are actually face to face, literally, if they have to see each other as human beings in the same room and listen to each other, that's how you learn or relearn the skills of self-government that we've lost. I don't think you start at the national level because it's, it's too broken. Well, you just used a phrase I wanted to ask you about next, which is, and it's a thread, it's a theme in your book, self-governing. You keep coming back to that. That's, that's the answer. That's what brings people together. How do we do that uh, these days? Uh, uh, how do Americans self-govern, if you will? Certainly not, not, on, not on the internet. Well, I use the word self-government because... Oh, it, to me, it's democracy in action. Democracy we think of as, as the Constitution and rights and laws and institutions. Self-government is how people actually do things together, solve problems, or don't. It's a, it's a set of skills. Tocqueville called it an art. It is not natural. You're not born knowing it. And it can easily erode, and I think that's happened. So how do we regain that art? I think there are ways that we could force ourselves to deal with each other in a better way than we do. Twitter, to me, is the worst way to deal with each other as fellow citizens. I think people are their worst self on Twitter, a lot of people at least, Uh, and they never have to face the person they're talking about and suffer the consequences. 
Everyone is, is an abstraction. If you're in the same room together, you really can't talk to each other in that way without consequences. So what are some ways that might happen? I think a program of national service, which comes up from time to time mm-hmm. and never happens, would be an ideal way for young Americans to spend a year working with other young Americans from totally different backgrounds on common problems and just learning how to deal with each other, how to talk and listen, and maybe even learning that uh, the other side or the other person has some reasons and some good things to offer and isn't just the monster of the political imagination. Um, I think teaching civics in a way that doesn't force a particular narrative on our students, but teaches them how to think, how to think about democracy, how to think about solving problems with critical analysis. For some reason, this has fallen out of our schools, and it really, I think, should be back in. And I think journalists need to remember what our trade is about. It's about reporting. It's about learning about people who are nothing like ourselves. It's about listening rather than simply building a brand on social media. These are scattered and maybe not totally adequate, but for me, a start. All of these are a start toward becoming citizens together and and learning to govern ourselves again. I'm glad you mentioned journalism because, again, uh, you you put a lot of emphasis uh, in in your book on that. But there is a re- as journalists, we do have a responsibility to do more than uh, just search for uh, click clickbait. I guess is the phrase, right? Absolutely. We're now driven by all the data we have access to. Um, every time an article is written, editors know exactly how many people have looked at it, how long they've looked at it for, how deep into the article they got, so they know what works and what doesn't. And it's a kind of dangerous knowledge because it means you start pursuing that maybe at the expense of other stories that are important, but that don't immediately generate you know, frenetic interest for five minutes uh, or go viral. Um, And so data becomes a corrupting, it can become a corrupting force in journalism. And so can um, platforms that elevate the journalist above the work and above the story and the subject. Um, That's how you make it today in our profession. You, you, with followers, with likes and retweets. So I think these are all sort of corrupting influences that, and the, of course, the algorithms all steer the readers toward the most explosive, the most uh, you know, blood pressure increasing uh, tweets and views, and those are often the least worthwhile. So we, we do need to find ways to change the incentives in journalism and finally to make local journalism a reality again. It's disappearing from this country. Everything is now filtered through the national um, media and people don't know what's going on in their own community because they don't have a local newspaper any longer. We've lost uh, that vital source of local democracy. How would you rate the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement in uh bringing Americans together and um, maybe uh, moving toward this goal of equality? I think it is a crucial change in the way we think about our history because it has 
forced a kind of complacent narrative of incremental progress toward a more perfect union to face the fact that the history of black people in this country is ongoing, that the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and racism is ongoing, even if we don't have the same institutions. So it's, I think it's like a necessary, a necessary thing in order to allow us to get to a more equal America by admitting that the past is still with us. But I also think it has taken a a worrying or a a negative turn toward a kind of illiberal way of thinking about America, which is to say we are entirely defined by race. Our identity is our race. It's an essence, not an accident. It determines how we think, how we see each other. And it it limits us in what we can say and in what we can do in a way that may not be uh, entirely positive, that might actually keep us from thinking hard about our problems and finding the right solutions to them. So there's this strain of illiberalism that is on the left as well as on the right that is, to me, is a, is a worrying trend in our culture, especially among younger people who, are, who have lost faith in some of the democratic values that that I grew up not even questioning. And finally, George, I always believe that it's important to have leaders who rise to the moment too. You pointed out earlier that uh, Joe Biden may in fact be the right man at the right moment to pull, to help pull us out of this. In the book, you mentioned people that you who who filled this role in the past um, and when America was in a moment of crisis, you call them equalizers uh, and they include uh, Horace Greeley, uh, the great journalist and publisher, um, Francis Perkins, the former labor secretary, Bayard Rustin, who was such a, um, a mentor for Martin Luther King Jr. Do you see leaders today uh, who can, you know, help us out of this mess? I mean, I th- I see some incredibly energized and Um, hopeful figures. We're in a state of tremendous turmoil and change. I mean, cultural change, political change, like nothing since the 60s, Bill, Um, which I I was a kid then, so I can't speak really from firsthand knowledge, but I do see so many ways in which we're going through something similar, big generational breaks and and conflicts and, and just changes in the way we we talk and think. I would point to Stacey Abrams as a, a, a person who has made mm-hmm. electoral democracy her, her life's work and who is both obviously talented as an organizer. She got a lot done in Georgia, but also seems to have this ability to a kind of wisdom to listen and to even to be able to compromise when it, it's it's necessary. For example, when the for the people bill um, looked like it was stalled, and then Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator, came out with his own um, watered down version. Stacey Abrams didn't say we will never compromise with Joe Manchin. She said that's promising. Let's talk. 
she's a model of how self-government works, um, in my view. And um, yeah, and there are others. There's some journalists I know who are not in the limelight, who don't get, who are, <laughs> no stories are written about them. They write the stories, but the stories, <laughs> for example, which is the way it should be, for example, uh, a guy named Alec McGillis, who has just written a book about Amazon and not about the company, but about its effect on regions that are becoming more and more hollowed out and how it creates inequality between regions and how monopoly, um, how, how a monopoly like Amazon can destroy uh, economies around the country. It's called Fulfillment and it's a wonderful book and it's an important book. That's the kind of journalism I think we need more of, just the kind where a, a reporter spends a lot of time talking to people who you otherwise wouldn't know or hear from and listens and then tells their stories in a way that makes sense of some major trend. I think you and I both, George, would like to get back to the day when we talked about the stories and not about the journalist, right? That <laughs> Not it, so much about the journalist. It's, it's weird how much media now is about media. It's a sign of some decadence yeah. that I think is a bad, it's a bad turn that we really need to get away from. George Packer, thank you so much for spending time with us again, friends. Uh, the name of George's latest book title is Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, a very thoughtful and a very thought-provoking look at America today. Uh, I must say, George, I started out your first chapters feeling very pessimistic. I ended up feeling very optimistic, and I do after our, our conversation today as well. Uh, th thanks, George, so much. Uh, by the way, we'll have a link to uh, purchase the book on the episode notes to today's uh, podcast with George Packer. Thanks, George. We'll talk again soon. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate your interest. Thanks a lot. And that's it for today's podcast with George Packer, his new book again, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, a link to purchase the book you will find on the episode notes of this edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you're having a great summer. Take care of yourselves and then come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.